Happy Friday, everyone, and welcome to HR Work Break. I'm your host, Maddie Collins, editor of HR Daily Advisor. HR Work Break takes a quick but close look at everything human resources. For any HR professional, it's a must listen. I hope you learned something new, take some advice to heart, or simply stay abreast today's trending topics. Now, it's time for a work break. Happy Friday, everyone. Today, I'm joined by Kika Ojo-Thompson, diversity, equity, inclusion expert and founder and CEO of the Kojo Institute. The Kojo Institute develops and facilitates innovative training, professional development, organizational change processes, keynote speeches, lectures, and critical conversations customized to the unique concerns of each of their clients, staff, and the people they serve. Kika, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. Nice to be with you, Maddie. Yeah, it's nice to have you here. So this past Monday, we celebrated Martin Luther King Jr. Day. And while it's important to use that day to honor Dr. King's groundbreaking work to address injustice and violence all across the world, realistically, HR leaders need to embrace and teach these values throughout the year. So one of my first questions for you is, in remembrance of Dr. King's work, what steps can HR leaders do to create meaningful policies and change within the workplace? Well, you know, I've been thinking a lot about Dr. King, as we all have at this time of year. And one of the things that's really standing out for me is the fact that, you know, when he was alive, he was the most hated man in America, or one of the top three or something. And that was actually surveyed. Oh, for real? Yeah, this was proven or, you know, this was data collected then, you know, to say that this was the most hated man in America at the time. And so thinking about that and thinking about how critical and important his work and messages were and how much he's reflected upon today is so interesting. And so when I think about workplaces today and, you know, one of the roles that HR has in creating the future we want, frankly, and the change that we're looking for is really how we create access that is safe and easy even to find. How do people who dare to give us the gift of correction, you know, who dare to say the workplace, the environment is problematic in these ways? How do we create mechanisms to allow their voices to find leadership, to find the critical levers in the organization, right? How do we create pathways for that? So how do we make those easy to access, but also safe, right? So he was one of the top three or top five, you know, hated men in America or hated people in America, I think. And, you know, we can talk about that stat today in a sort of a detached way, but what that looked like was threats, you know, it looked like death threats. It looked like all kinds of messaging back to him and his family, his wife, his children, that the work that he was doing was not welcomed and that it was not safe to do so. So I think that HR has a huge opportunity to make our environments safe for these critical voices that are really doing the organization a favor, right? This is about quality improvement. This is about, you know, getting to sort of a best in class work environment. And we can't do that if we don't get to hear in the first place, the way that we're impacting everyone who's in the workplace. Exactly. You can't have a psychologically safe or like a candid work environment if you don't establish it as a place where like diversity is welcomed, encouraged, and there's the opportunity and need to learn kind of every step of the way. Exactly. You know, and it's like if people suffer for sharing those ideas or experiences or, you know, speaking truth to power, um, which is such an important phrase, if people suffer for doing that, then the culture that gets created is one where that is not normal. 
that never becomes normalized in a culture where there's punitive consequences and outcomes for doing that. And so this is how important it is. It is really the difference between a change-friendly organization and one that is not. Definitely. And I know that a lot of ways that people kind of gauge how the climate is within their organization is through like employee surveys. Do you think that there's more strength and like anonymity in that regard or more strength in like being able to in person talk to your manager or like an HR leader or if there's necessity for both in different situations? Yeah, I mean, it's so interesting because it kind of goes back to the first point and we have to ask ourselves, what culture do I have? And be real about that, right? We have a culture where anonymity is required. And I don't say that, I don't think that any organizational leaders and HR leaders need to necessarily feel bad about that per se. I mean, as long as there's a commitment to move, right? Yeah. Then acknowledging what's true about the organization is what needs to happen. So we acknowledge that it is not yet safe enough for this to be something other than anonymous, right? And then set that up. But if you have invested in incentivizing the organization into this kind of change work and people lean in and it's actually on vogue in the organization to, you know, name race and racism, if that's the organization you have, then, you know, moving towards sort of people not only identifying themselves, uh, but also leaning more upon those spaces, those sort of everyday person to person interactions. It's the popping over to the boss of the supervisor, knock, knock, knock. Hey, do you have a moment? Like if you have that culture where issues of race and racism in particular, which is what Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s primary focus was, of course, with an intersectional lens, right? If that's the environment of space that you have, then by all means, you know, invest in this idea that people will kind of drop by and chat about it, right? But we have to be real. We have to be real about the spaces that we have and have created. And do you have any advice for leaders trying to identify what kind of space they have and transition it into a more like communicative place? Such a good question. So I think that this idea of the calls for anonymity, like are people sort of letting you know that I'm not interested in participating, I'm afraid. Yeah. Because you even have folks where the survey is fully anonymous and they still won't participate. Right, exactly. So that's a marker. That's an indicator of where we are. It suggests that trust is low, you know, that what people have observed is that speaking about this work and leaning in is actually costly and something they'd rather not bother to do. So the path to get from where you are to where you want to be is to really be intentional about that culture shift. And, you know, I always tell people culture can really be like, if you want to know what an organization's culture is, look at what they value. If you want to know what they value, look at what they reward and consequence. So, you know, particularly after George Floyd was murdered, there were all of these proclamations of commitment and sort of where organizations stood. Well, the proof is in the pudding. If we say that, and then I am sitting around a decision-making table or a meeting table, whatever, and I raise racism and people clutch their pearls and they're sort of aghast, the message that I'm getting is we said that, but we don't actually expect you to like do that. It's empty words at that point. Very empty words. And in fact, that clutching of pearls, that gasping usually comes with some sort of exclusionary experience thereafter, right? So the person that raises it is then seen as sort of a pariah in the space and they feel it in a number of different ways. Sometimes they're no longer eligible for promotion because they're seen as a troublemaker. Nobody wants that trouble. I think we underestimate sometimes the level of subtlety seeming subtlety 
that we're still messaging through. And so there's the consequence of, you know, sort of clutching of pearls, gasp, you know, lean back, uh, exclude. Those things are seen as clear consequences. But the other way that we define culture and create organizational culture is through what we reward. Are we even acknowledging, noticing, naming, tabling, and then rewarding in some more traditional ways, you know, the folks who bother to make the organization better by giving the gift of correction? I'm being very intentional with my words for a reason, right? I'm trying to reframe how we see even complaints. When an employee bothers to say like, this happened and it was racist, whether they were the target or they observed it happening to other folks or as an outcome of a piece of work or however it should happen, right? That when folks bother to give us that feedback, it's a gift and often one that costs them. Yeah. Because people are aware of the culture that we're in and even beyond your organization's specific culture, we have a societal set of norms that inform the degree to which people are interested in, you know, engaging in this work. Yeah. Right? There's a collective sort of posture like, oh, hot topic, heavy topic. Ugh. It just makes me think about like intersectionality and how challenging it can be to like unlearn processes and acknowledge that white supremacy invades every single level of our society. And recognizing that ripple effect and the weight that it can affect your words and how people interact and how people are rewarded and punished is a daunting task, but a necessary one. Absolutely. So as we were talking about company culture, let's say that leaders, like they do recognize that their workers are afraid to speak out or that they have been punished or like sidelined because they've brought up that something is racist or that we need to like readdress how the company sees something. What advice do you have to leaders trying to like reform and change those practices to make it more inclusive and not inherently racist, you know? Yeah. I mean, at Kojo Institute, we work with a number of frameworks. We have some key frameworks for this very thing and, and then processes, right? So supporting uh, organizations, you know, change work through those frameworks, but also through executive coaching and then through professional development so that people understand what's going on. You know, specific to this question I'm really thinking about the leaders and the very specific role they have of endorsement, of buy-in, but literally leading the work. So not having it be this thing over there, quote unquote, that some department over there, under there, you know, is taken care of. And, you know, you kind of give yourself a tick mark because you've allowed it to be established. This work will require you. This work will require all the critical levers of leadership and influence throughout the organization. So everyone that's within the C-suite on down must be uh, seen to be proclaiming the importance and the centrality of this, but also following it up with right action. We need CEOs in every critical moment that they speak to ensure that this is integrated, but also follow it up with proper resourcing, a centrality around strategic directions and planning processes, you know, what gets told to the board, what gets told to the community at large, you know, even for the most corporate of corporations, what your buyers, what your service users, clients understand about you is rooted in or is the result of what you've told them. So what are you telling them? And what are you making as the important declarations, proclamations, messaging from your organization and what are you not doing that about and so that is easily noticed know that you are constantly being watched particularly about this subject right that the entire organization and i think this is true about ceos and c-suite members and i'm presuming that your listeners are thinking that that includes the hr folks right 
So beyond even the C-suite HR folks, understand that HR is a massive lever inside of organizations and has huge influence on whether things get enabled and pushed through or are impeded. So every single member of HR is being watched very critically around their reaction to this. So for example, you're having a staff town hall, there's some narrative about this work, and you sit back in your chair. You push away from your table. You physically look dismissive. Yes, you drop your pen, you fold your arms, you roll your eyes, you look away, you pick up your phone, you yawn. Can you tell I've seen a few things in my time, right? Definitely. (laughs) I can get really specific about all the ways that's the moment you kind of chat with your neighbor, you stir your coffee. Like there are so many ways that we're dismissing and we're distracted and, you know, we perform all these things. Like it's not even about the person that's presenting or the targeted group watching. Everybody's watching you to make meaning of what place this issue holds in the organization. And it's constant. You're always on. It doesn't stop. So know that and be intentional and be consistent and be thoughtful. So that's one. The other thing is that so much of the sort of illiteracy about these issues and sort of fear about these issues is connected to a culture, which is actually part of white supremacist culture, actually, that's quite normalized among us, is perfectionism. Exactly. Yeah. I read a really interesting article about how perfectionism is inherently white supremacist, and it blew my mind. I was like, ooh, ooh, I got to rethink a lot of things. All of us, right? Everyone, yeah. And because we were socialized in it, it's the water we're swimming in. And whether the target of white supremacy or a beneficiary of white supremacy, we're all impacted by white supremacy and it's informing all of our lives and our our ways of operating. And so we don't trouble. But one of the direct impacts of that interest and that sort of commitment to perfectionism is that we're not comfortable with being called out or in. We're not comfortable with you know, being identified as a source of a problem or source of particularly racism. I would say racism globally is the number one issue that people are the most uncomfortable about being identified with, right? Like, so what does that mean? Well, it means that we're not prepared to table it and we can't address what we are not prepared to table. We cannot fix and make better what we are not prepared to name. So going back to the question, you know, what is that asking of leaders? Leaders need to be able to sit in what we call at Kojo Institute, and this was taught to us by various people on my journey, is a posture of practice versus a posture of perfection. So a posture of perfection says, you know, someone comes to tell you about a way that you've been oppressive, racist, etc. And in a posture of perfection, it sounds like, excuse me, do you know who I am? Do you know how long I've been doing this work? People very quickly get defensive. Yeah, it's defense, denial, dismissal, obfuscation, right? It's credentializing ourselves about the issue. It's legitimizing ourselves. My, you know, my partner is Black. My grandchildren are Asian, like whatever, um, to legitimize ourselves in relation to the issue. And so what does that do, right? The messenger is rejected, but can also be harmed by that, that denial, dismissal, obfuscation. We're not understanding that what we received was a gift that they didn't have to give us. And so the process of of, of change and progress is eliminated and stymied, right? By those personal reactions. We get to show up in a posture of practice. And in a posture of practice, someone taps you on your shoulder to tell you that you've been racist or oppressive, et cetera, in some ways. And we get to say, thank you so much for telling me. I am so sorry for the impact I've had. Please stay close. 
I'm really committed to doing this work. Exactly. It's an opportunity to take responsibility and learn and grow from that moment. And invite the return of the messenger over and over again. It's the acknowledgement that due to my identity, I have default ways of knowing and thinking that can put me at risk of harming, not being harmed, but harming, right? And so I acknowledge that. I know that that's true about my social location and my identity and my positioning. So rather than rush to defense and posture of perfection, I'm more likely to go into a posture of practice. That's really good advice. I really like that perspective. I don't think I've ever heard it put in like such like a a straightforward, succinct way, you know, like positive company cultures inherently have room to learn and grow. And this is just like another facet of that. Exactly. And so the more that leaders show up with a posture of practice, they're modeling for everyone else that you're making the error wasn't the worst thing you could do. Your denial, dismissal, and obfuscation of that error is the worst thing you can do. You did or said or produced something racist. The best thing you can do next is go, thank you for telling me. I'm so sorry for the impact I've had. Please stay close. I'm really working on this. Versus, you know, excuse me, what are you talking about? So now there was the harm and now there's harm again and again. Continues the cycle. Yeah. But when leaders, whoever you may be, are holding that posture of practice, you have the power to cause a whole ripple effect throughout the entire organization that is a posture of practice. And we've talked a lot about like the HR team specifically and the C-suite. How do you recommend teaching that down the chain of command so that it's an entire team effort, like the whole company is behind it, that posture of practice? Yeah, I think there are some natural opportunities, right? So your next team meeting, you get to turn a page. You get to say, you know, I was listening to this podcast and I want to start over, <laughs> right? You know, um, I want to share with you a bit about my identity and my story. I want to share a bit about you know, where I'm coming from. I want to acknowledge right now that systemic racism is real and it's here, it's at our organization and it lives in various departments throughout. So it's here in HR. And so what that means is we want to be anti-racist because we want to be action-oriented and strategic in how we do HR, how we do, you know, whatever department we're referring to. And as part of that, I want to also make myself available to your feedback to your critical eye, please know that I will have office hours. I'm totally making this up, right? For a reason. <laughs> I will have office hours, you know, the last Friday of every month uh, in the afternoon that is solely for hearing from you things that you want me to know about how I'm impacting you or the organization or the work that we're doing. It's like, uh, what do you call it? Office hours for anti-racism kind of thing. And what's beautiful, like what I think is so cool about that it's proactive. You know, it's not you suddenly did it and it's, it's because you're reacting to some crisis, but it acknowledges that systemic racism is with us. So it normalizes that we're going to meet about this. We're going to talk about it in our team meetings. But in addition, I'm going to play out the awareness that it's not always safe or comfortable for folks to step up and, and share that in a team meeting. So I'm going to have office hours and you can know that your narrative about this is invited on those days. Come, come with those things I want to know. Yeah, it definitely opens that line of communication and also shows a necessary thoughtfulness about like what you said, if someone doesn't necessarily feel safe to discuss it in a group setting or some other situation. Yeah, but you know, also the group is great, right? And normalizing the conversation, not waiting for crisis. Even if the conversation sounds like, 
okay, I want to put this on our agenda. I want us to talk about this regularly. I am no expert. I'm not even sure how to begin, but you know, and I'm just going to offer this as an example for folks that this might be their personal story. This is to your team meetings. You know, we know the systemic racism is here. How is it playing out? How have people noticed systemic racism playing out? It's not a point of complaint per se. It's not a crisis response. It's just normalizing the fact that it's here and operating. And let's get better, particularly as HR, at identifying it and going there, 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 there. Ah, that's our own work, right? As HR, we did that internally. And I'm saying us and all that. I'm not an HR <laughs> facilitator. Let's take that brainstorm or whatever you call it, and let's integrate it into our work, into our planning, into our doing. Let's act like we know. So much of the time, HR departments operate as if they are neutral or as if the organization is neutral, even as we know better, right? That's not helpful for anyone. No, we need to operate knowing that racism is around, is systemic and operating. What would we do then? What would we do based on that awareness? The being aware makes it more tangible to effectively enact any sort of DE&I initiatives because you're not flying blind. You're like, okay, we've seen the signs, we've addressed it, we're communicating with our people, and now we're going to develop what we are going to do about it. Exactly. And if we could take it even one step further, even better, if you are an organization that does not have your disaggregated identity-based data collected, you're not using it for your strategic work, then that's your place to start. And I think HR has a huge role in that and a huge role in instituting and being the initiator of the data collection piece, the disaggregated identity-based data collection. So that's a really important step one. It will require a communications plan, campaign, time, interaction with staff to help them understand why, and a direct link to the organization's equity work and anti-racism work. Definitely. I have one final question for you. Since the podcast airs on Fridays, my favorite way to close it out is to ask what you're looking forward to this weekend. We're doing some deepening of relationships this weekend, my partner and I. So we're spending time with people who we really want to spend time with, first of all. <laughs> you know, we're exercising our, our choices and spending time with people who we love and who we want to deepen relationships with, even beyond family. So I'm being specific not to name family because that's not, it's not family. It's friend groups that we want to deepen with. And both my partner and I are very, I dislike the word busy, but we have hectic schedules. <laughs> we have involved schedules. And so, you know, it's on purpose downtime. I mean, it was planned, you know, several, several, several weeks before, and that's kind of our lives. But I really look forward to those opportunities and just sort of let loose a little bit and share and engage and have really interesting conversations. I'm a deep conversation person. So I love stuff like this. That's awesome. I hope you have really good connections. One thing I've noticed as I've gotten like older, I guess, not that I'm that old, is just the intentionality you need with a uh, developing and continuing friendships. It's a choice every single time. It's a choice. It's like every kind of relationship that gets past that surface thing that goes towards intimacy of any kind requires that you choose it every day. So yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining me on the show, Kika. It was really a pleasure speaking with you. An immense pleasure, Maddie. Thank you. Great questions. Again, I'm Maddie Collins and thank you for listening. Join us next Friday or whenever you need a work break.